Welcome to the Voices Driving Change podcast by the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy. We're releasing this episode of the podcast as part of our September 2020 online event, State of the Environment, Voices Driving Change. From September 15th to 24th, you can hear from the Voices Driving Change for climate justice and clean water across Minnesota in 10 different ways, including live online events, webinars, and podcasts like this one. Each of them highlights ways in which people are driving change here in Minnesota by speaking up for the communities and places that they care about. Learn more. Go to VoicesDrivingChange.org. That's VoicesDrivingChange.org to read more about the stories we feature in the podcast and register for all of the online events. And be sure to join us at 7 p.m. on Thursday, September 24th for our grand finale, a live online event called Legally Green in Your Living Room. Again, you can learn more and register for all of the events and learn about all the podcasts in September at VoicesDrivingChange.org. Thanks to all of our supporters and sponsors who make our work and this podcast possible. Hello, I'm Aaron Clems from the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy, and you are listening to Episode 2 of the Voices Driving Change podcast. In the next few weeks, we travel across Minnesota to hear from people whose voices are driving change for climate justice and clean water. Today's episode is called Climate Solutions 2020 and Beyond, and I get to talk with Ellen Anderson, MCEA's Climate Program Director. Ellen just started with MCEA this summer, and we're really excited to have her leading our climate work. She served over 17 years in the Minnesota Senate, was the chair of Minnesota's Public Utilities Commission, and also led the Energy Transition Lab at the University of Minnesota for the last several years. She was instrumental in designing Minnesota's legislative response to climate change in 2007, and she's right now doing a lot of thinking and planning about what we need to do in 2020 and beyond to meet the challenge of climate change. But first, let's hear from voices driving change on climate justice, including Minnesota young people calling for legislative action at the Minnesota Capitol last session. We have failed to meet the greenhouse gas targets we've set as a state and are not currently on track to meet our future targets. As testifiers have told members of this committee, Minnesota is the most impacted state in the nation in terms of the rate of climate change. And if you look at large cities, Minneapolis, the city I represent, is the most impacted city in the nation. Our governor has called climate change an existential crisis. Those words are well chosen. I want to know that I did all I could to give my kids and all our kids a chance, not just to survive, but to thrive. I want my kids to decide for themselves the future they want without fear about climate change. We owe this to them. Climate change is an urgent threat, and it must be treated as such. I know that together, we can build a more just, equitable economy based on renewable energy like solar and wind. I am an American by choice. That means I was not born in this country. I chose America, and America accepted me as a citizen. I was born in Bangladesh, a land already impacted deeply by climate change. With 150 million people, Bangladesh is one of the most densely populated places on Earth. It has half the people of America on half the land of Minnesota. I don't want my new homeland to also suffer like my previous homeland. 
Instead of that, we can take this as an opportunity to build a new economy built around clean energy. That is why we must act now for 100% equitable and clean energy. And we have a once in a generation opportunity to ensure the well-being of those whom we love today and to secure a healthy future for our children and grandchildren. This isn't a Republican issue. It's not a Democratic issue. It's nobody inside or outside the lines. It's an everybody issue. It's an issue we all share. Every baby, every elderly person, every child, every plant, every molecule of water. Climate change is dire to address now because we are already starting to see the disastrous effects that humans have expedited. I speak not only for myself, but for my friends, my family, my generation, and future generations, so that we may have a bright future without a massive dependency on fossil fuels. As we urge our government to confront the issue of climate change and to preserve our planet, we must also ensure that more immediate solutions are being implemented to protect those most affected by the consequences of climate change. Today I'm having a conversation with Ellen Anderson, MCEA's Climate Program Director. Ellen started at MCEA in June, having served as the Director of the University of Minnesota's Energy Transition Lab, and also Chair of the Minnesota Public Utilities Commission, and 17 years as a Minnesota Senator. She's the architect of the 2007 legislation that set Minnesota's climate goals, the Next Generation Energy Act, and she's been thinking a lot about the next set of bold climate actions that Minnesota should take. Ellen, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So Ellen, you just started at MCA as the Climate Program Director. Tell folks a little bit about your background and what you're most excited about as you settle into this new role. Well, as you mentioned, Aaron, back in 2007 when I was in the legislature, we worked really hard to establish these strong climate and clean energy goals, renewable energy goals, energy efficiency goals, and cutting greenhouse gas emissions goals. And some of those have been very successful but a lot of those goals have not been met. And so I am super excited about being at MCEA where we have a really smart group of people who can work to help to um, actualize those goals and really make progress quickly and boldly, which is what we need to do. Yeah. So I really want to delve a little bit deeper into this question of what these goals were. So the Next Generation Energy Act established some percentages that we were supposed to meet at different timelines. And I'm wondering if you could walk us through kind of what the law did. Because at the time when it passed in 2007, it was really putting Minnesota at the forefront of state-level action on climate. What goals did we set back in 2007? Yeah, that's right. So there were three main parts to this law that we passed. One was a requiring that at least 25% of our energy sources, our electricity sources, come from renewable energy. And that goal has been met seven years ahead of schedule. So that was really successful. We're now at 25% renewable energy in Minnesota's electrical system. We also set requirements for more energy efficiency in homes and buildings. And those are making some progress. But the the most important thing that the Next Generation Energy Act did relating to climate is to set statewide, economy-wide targets for reducing greenhouse gas emissions across the state 
from every sector of the economy. And so that means that it's supposed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in not just electricity, but also transportation, industry, buildings, agriculture, waste, etc. And we are not making progress in many of those areas. So the law said that we had to cut emissions across the state 15% by 2015, 30% by 2025, and 80% by 2050. So let me tell you what happened with each of those targets. The 2015 target, we blew past it and did not meet it at all. So that's not good. The next target, the next benchmark that we face is coming right up in 2025. And by 2025, we should have reduced emissions 30%. And this is from a baseline of 2005. The only sector where we will meet that is in the electricity sector. And we can talk about that more. And then finally, the 2050 goal, it's pretty far out there. But when we created that goal, at the legislature in 2007, the reason we picked an 80% reduction by 2050 in all greenhouse gas emissions was based on the science. Because the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, this group that is led by the United Nations as part of their climate work, includes hundreds of preeminent scientists from around the world who work together to come up with the best science about what we need to do to get into the future without the worst impacts of climate change. And so at that time in 2007, this is a lot of numbers, sorry. In 2007, an 80% reduction by 2050 was considered by the IPCC, these top scientists, to be what we needed to accomplish to avoid the worst impacts of climate change and keep global warming to two degrees increase by the end of the century. So what does the science say now? I mean, it seems like, you know, if that was what it said in 2007, and we've seen a lot of news coverage of the science and development that's gone behind it, what does the science tell us now? And are those goals still sufficient? The goals are not sufficient anymore based on the science. So this really increases the urgency of action on climate change. So what the latest research and scientific data from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the preeminent scientists of the world say we have to accelerate this reduction of greenhouse gas emissions really quite dramatically. And we have to cut them 40% by 2030. So that's daunting. 10 years from now, by 10 years from now, we should be at a 40% reduction. And we're not even close, unfortunately. So we have a lot of work to do. And the urgency becomes more evident every year because we see the impacts of climate change starting to affect people around the world on a regular basis. You mentioned that the electricity sector is making good progress toward a number of these goals, but other parts of the economy aren't. What are parts of the economy that we need to see more progress on quickly in order to make the reductions necessary to protect the climate for the next generation? So I would say the two biggest sectors that have not made progress very much are transportation and agriculture. And those are the top two emitters of greenhouse gas emissions at this point in time in the state of Minnesota and for most of the country as well. And so we figured out how to cut 
carbon emissions out of electricity systems very effectively and, and have done it at a really low cost with the expansion of wind and solar and renewable energy integration. But um, transportation is now the leading emitter of carbon pollution around the whole United States. And so trying to um, reduce pollution from cars, vehicles, planes, and every other form of um, transportation is a critical need to do next. I mean, one of the things that I noticed, because I grew up here in Minnesota, is that we like to think we're better than everybody else in some ways, or at least we're above average, I guess is the way they said it. They used to say it on the radio. But Minnesota is not immune to these impacts, even though you know, we're in the middle of the continent. I guess the question I had for you is, what, what impacts are we seeing from climate change here in Minnesota already? It's true that people don't see the Midwest as a hotbed of climate change, but that's absolutely wrong. Um, you know, even though we see on the coast the, you know, the big surges of sea level rise and hurricanes and wildfires in the West, those are more widely visible to the public. But the fact is that here in Minnesota, we have one of the fastest changing climates in the country. And so that means we're experiencing climate change at a more dramatic level than many other states. And the way we see it is unique to our ecosystems. It's a lot of flooding. It's a lot of extreme weather events that bring just huge deluges of rain coming down all at once. You know, these kind of cyclone, uh, the, the, the rain bombs that are pouring down huge amounts of moisture. And at the same time, we have droughts in some parts of our state. And there are years where we've had both flood disaster declared and drought disaster declared at the same time in the same year. And so across the state, we've seen many of those impacts. And we're also seeing warmer winters, especially the cold, coldest nights are warming up. And so this is affecting ice out times and affecting the economy in northern Minnesota, um, which relies on ice and snow in the winter and and an extreme heat that's affecting more and more people in especially in in urban areas and in the southwest part of the state. They've reached some tropical kind of like rainforest humidity levels are getting to be more and more common on hot summer days. So those are some of the ways we're experiencing climate change. So as we've seen the impacts of climate change develop over time, it's becoming increasingly obvious that some people are getting impacted more by climate change than others. What do we know from the science about who's taking the brunt of bearing the most impact from the climate change we're seeing so far and what it might look like in the future? So on a global level, we know that the impact of climate change tends to hit the most vulnerable populations around the world. And of course, oftentimes that's in countries where there's very dense populations of not wealthy people, of low income or very poor communities that are facing sea level rise, for example. And there's other kinds of disasters like that that are likely to grow and spread out. I mean, we had we had wildfires in, you know, in <laughs> the cold part of Russia, you know, this year, which is unheard of. And so there's lots of parts of the world where very vulnerable people are affected and have the least ability to to really 
be able to withstand the impacts of flooding, droughts, extreme rains and, and sea level rise, also health direct health impacts that come from some of these, uh, from extreme heat and other kinds of, of problems that are created by this. And at a more local level in the United States and here in Minnesota, we've We've been learning more and more about how, again, the most vulnerable communities, those who are low income or communities of color or tribal communities, tend to be most vulnerable to um, some of these extreme events, partly because they don't have the, often the financial resources to protect themselves or to take care of their health needs if there's a, you know, power outages and there's no cooling available, for example, that can really hurt a lot of populations. And so there's a lot of, of inequitable impact. And it's also often on communities that have gotten the bulk of air pollution impacts for many years as well. So it's sort of a, a double whammy. And in addition to that, the ecological impacts affect some of those more vulnerable communities as well. So tribal communities, for example, have talked about in Northern Minnesota, the wild rice is such a key part of their heritage and of their diet and their nutrition. And the warming temperatures are taking, are creating pests and predators that make it difficult for wild rice to be robustly growing and healthily growing. So. There's lots of uh, disproportionate impacts that we need to be cognizant of as we try to work hard for bold climate solutions. Another part of that that's interesting to me is the growth in youth activism, right? So you have young people taking to the streets across the country and across the world. Greta Thunberg um, has really led in many ways a youth movement, but that youth movement already existed before and has also been led by people across the United States in all walks of life. And that's my question for you is, what has that meant for the climate movement? That's a relatively, I mean, not that young people weren't involved before, but certainly this surge in youth activism has been really marked over the last couple of years. What has that meant for climate change and, and the action we need to take to, to fix it? I think it's incredibly powerful what young people have been doing and to, to really, you know, raise their voices on this. And they have, you know, they have a powerful impact, especially when it's sort of face-to-face -face with uh, decision makers and political leaders. I've seen youth climate activists go to the state capitol. I've seen them go to city council meetings in different cities in, mini in Minnesota and say, our whole future is at stake and we demand that you take action to protect our future. I've seen decision makers be so moved by that because, you know, they think of their own children and grandchildren and, you know, all the young people they know and so they've they've agreed to pass really aggressive climate policies in response to that. So I think it can be very powerful. And as these youth continue and get older, I think they're also influencing elections. And they're going to really have a big impact on the political side of things by their loud voices, you know, by raising their voices so strongly. That should really I think it helps to raise public awareness generally. Since 2016, the, the federal government has really abdicated its role in fighting climate change, and whether it's withdrawing from the Paris Accords or reducing regulations that re limit greenhouse gas pollution. But 2021 could be a big shift. We could see a different set of leaders in office. 
Will this make Minnesota's efforts as a state less important or how will it change how Minnesota should address climate change? Well, what happens at the federal level is absolutely essential to what we do and to how successful we'll be able to be. We can do a lot as a state and we have passed some really strong policies, but with downright hostility from the federal government about climate action, it, we t it, it takes away the tools, some of the tools in the toolbox because, you know, for example, in Minnesota, we are trying to pass a clean car standard in, into uh, a rule in Minnesota. And what that would do is allow people who want to electrify their transportation and switch their next car out for an electric car. They have so few choices in Minnesota for what types of cars they can buy. And you, you need to pass this law to be able to make it work in, in Minnesota. And it will allow consumers to have so many more choices and options for electric vehicles. And you know the federal administration has tried to stop that and tried to roll back that, that provision in, in law. And there's so many examples like that. It's so important to have unified action around the globe on climate. It's, it's kind of clear to everyone that it's a global issue. We can make a real impact at every level from the most local to the most global, but you really need all of those to be successful. And when 196 nations came together in 2015 to, to agree to the Paris Accord, it was just a groundbreaking moment where there was recognition that we're all in this together. And the whole point of the Paris Accord is that it requires each country to figure out how they're going to reduce emissions. But the accord requires that they hold each other accountable, that you have to pressure each other, that it's all about sort of, well, this country doesn't want to be at a disadvantage by doing this. But if we're all in it together and we work together and push each other to higher levels of ambition, we can actually tackle this big, enormous problem. And the good news is that even though, even though the president of the United States said he wanted to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord and he hasn't been participating or supporting it, the fact is that the deadline to actually withdraw from it is after the November election. So if there's a change in federal leadership, if we have a different president, we can quickly join that Paris Accord still. And so that would be really helpful. And it's not just helpful to the United States and the signals that it sends across our country, it's essential because we're, you know, the most powerful country in the world and we're one of the largest emitters of, of, of greenhouse gas emissions. And so if we're at the table, we can influence other countries to be at the table and to take, take action. But if we abdicate our responsibilities there, it makes it easy for this coalition to fall apart. And so it's very essential to have U.S. leadership. I mean, it's, it's interesting, too, as you note, that one of the biggest challenges of this issue is its global scope and the fact that um, we got here not because we took one or two decisions over a period of, you know, a couple of years, but rather we've made literally probably trillions of decisions, some at the consumer level, some of them at the governmental level, that have all added up to add more and more carbon and other greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. And some people like to use this argument as a reason not to take action at the state level, to stay look, what can we really do here in Minnesota? We're, you know, whatever we do will be swamped by what happens in China or India or someplace else. 
I guess my question for you is what what do you say to folks like that or make this argument that says that Minnesota can't really make a difference and we shouldn't therefore try? Yeah, well, I just think that's um, it's a cop out, really. It's kind of saying that um, you there's nothing that can be done because if everybody said that we would, you know, we wouldn't get anywhere. So the fact is that we have seen over the years that what happens at the local level and what happens at the state level, when it's aggregated together, it has an enormous impact. In Minnesota, when we passed a 25% renewable energy requirement for our utilities, there were a number of other states that had done the same thing. And if you added up all the states that had those kinds of laws in place that required high percentages of renewable energy, which 25% seemed high at the time, now we need to go beyond that. But aggregated together, that was a majority of American citizens lived in states that had that kind of requirement. And it changed the entire market for wind and solar energy and created economies of scale and created um, created um, opportunities for investors to invest in renewable energy because there was a large market that was guaranteed for years to come. That's just one example. There's thousands of companies, cities around the world that have committed to climate action and to cutting their carbon emissions. And so while each individual might not make a big, you know, take a big bite out of that, that greenhouse gas emissions equation, when you start to combine them in a big way, it makes a big impact. And that's the only way we're going to solve a problem like this. And, and the fact is, we all contribute. We're all part of it. You know, everything we every day we all, um, you know, in the in the when we turn on our lights and when we heat our homes and when we drive our car, we're all contributing. And so what that means is that every one of us can also we can be part of the solution. Right. One more recent phenomenon, of course, is that we're dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And that really does have has had some interesting impacts on greenhouse gas pollution, because you have a big shift happening where many more people are now working from home as opposed to commuting to an office. And we've seen big changes, for example, in the airline industry, um, where travel has gone down quite a bit. Um, what should we be thinking about right now? Because obviously this this probably isn't a, this isn't a permanent situation. We're probably going to at some point come up with a treatment or a cure or a vaccine for COVID-19 and maybe return to a quote unquote more normal uh, existence. What should we be trying to learn from this moment and apply to try to help make progress on climate change as we come out on the other side of it? Yeah, that's a great question. Sort of the ordinary way of living that we've had has changed in so many ways that we didn't predict when this started. It's common for many people to work from home now, those who are fortunate enough to have a job where you can work from home. That has become mainstream for millions of Americans to work to work from their home. So it's changed when our electricity cycles um, peak because more people are home with their lights on and their computers on um, during the day than in prior uh, years. But it's also changed the fact that people don't have to drive to work as much, that they many people don't anymore. And you've seen uh, a huge resurgence of people going outside and going to parks and biking and walking and camping. And 
And like you said, a reduction in air travel. And so if we can try to hold on to some of those improvements in our quality of life that have been sort of side effects of the COVID, I think a lot of people would like to continue telecommuting in the future, or at least part of the time. And that can save a lot of money for people, and it could save a lot of energy in terms of transportation, in terms of office space and buildings. And maybe we will get used to not traveling in airplanes quite as much. I don't know. But some of the things that are coming out of this could actually benefit, be beneficial if we can adopt them in, on a longer term basis. You've been in this fight for a long time. You've been paying close attention to climate change for decades now. If you were to pick the one thing that you think is the most hopeful, the biggest impact we've done so far that's made progress on this issue, what would it be? What we've done is really phased out the use of coal in the United States. It's it's pretty phenomenal compared to where we were back in the 1990s and early 2000s, where a majority in Minnesota of our electricity came from coal-fired power plants and across the country as well. And it has dropped dramatically and wind and renewable energy that seemed almost like a pipe dream to many people during you know, the 90s when I started working in politics is now mainstream. Wind and solar are generally the cheapest sources of electricity that you can build now. And we know that we can integrate large percentages of renewable energy and run our electricity system largely on renewable energy. That is a revolution. And, you know, some of us were talking about this a long time ago, but most people didn't believe it was possible. I remember at the state capitol, we had experts who really knew what they were talking about come to the table in 2001 and say the highest amount of renewable energy we could ever have in our system is 1%. And then there were some real visionaries who said 3%, and that was it. And that is not a very long time ago. That's only 20 years ago. And so it's we've had a revolution in both clean energy growth and um, expansion and cost dropping in costs. At the same time, coal has become economically not viable. And so it's dying kind of a slow death. But in Minnesota, in the coming few years, we will have no more coal plants. And that'll be true in much of the United States. So in 2001, you had folks saying maybe between 1% and 3% was possible. For folks who don't know, what's the percentage right now? Well, we're at about 25% renewable electricity in Minnesota and growing very, very fast. A number of our utilities have pledged to be at 50% or 80% um, of clean energy or renewables in the coming years. And there's been uh, bills that are may pass in the legislature in a year that say that 100% of our electricity will come from renewable resources. So I think um, it's exponential growth is coming and it's unstoppable. But before we go, we don't want to leave you with big ideas, but nothing that you can do to help. So this is the part of the podcast we call One Thing You Can Do. 
So Alan, one of the biggest challenges in grappling with climate change is it can seem like nothing you can do will have an impact. We talked a little bit about that earlier. Why is it important to take individual actions to take on climate change, even if they make a small contribution to the overall solution? It's essential for, for everyone to take it as their own mission to do something about reducing their carbon footprint. And that's because we're never going to solve this problem unless everybody helps, um, because we're all p contributing to it. Everybody's part of it. And we all have a carbon footprint in our homes, in our vehicles, in our lives. And so, you know, everything that you do makes a difference because there's millions of other people, if they're doing that too, we can change the world. And I, and I know that that's true. And I've seen I've seen many of those things happen when you sort of scale them up, things that are um, individual actions. So we all know, well, we should all, there's lots of ways we can learn about our carbon footprint and things that we can improve in our homes and in our day-to-day um, -day lives. I guess the one that I'll pick today as my favorite choice is to try to reduce your transportation footprint. And I'll tell you why. Um, first of all, right now, across the country, transportation emissions are the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions in our country. And that's true in Minnesota as well. They've now surpassed electricity for greenhouse gas emissions. And so we need to do something about making our transportation system cleaner and greener. And the fact is, we're all part of it. We're all participants and we all use transportation. And so there's a lot of things that we can do individually and not everybody can afford to buy an electric vehicle or to change their home to electric heat from gas heat, from fossil fuels to electricity. But there's a lot of things that someone that you can do. Um, so, you know, next time you buy a car, think about an electric vehicle, because once you try one, you're never going to go back. <laughs> they're so much more efficient. They're quieter. They don't pollute in your neighborhood or on the streets where you drive. You can increase your biking, walking, public transportation, carpooling, all different ways that you can change your transportation footprint to be intentional about how much you drive, you know. When we drive cars and trucks and vehicles, we put an awful lot of pollution out in the air. Some of it is is uh, carbon emissions that contribute to to global warming and climate change, and some of it is just plain toxic pollution that makes us sick. And hundreds of thousands of people die every year in the United States because of pollution that comes from transportation vehicles. Changing our transportation sector so that it doesn't use fossil fuels. It's going to be a gradual process, but doing that will have so many other co-benefits. It will make our air so much cleaner as the electricity grid gets much cleaner and lower carbon. Then we can use that electricity from all that renewable energy to power transportation. And we're not 100% there yet, but we need that transition to happen quickly. And if we do, um, we will have cleaner air and healthier people as well as getting the fossil fuels out of our transportation system. That's great. I totally agree with that. And 
as somebody who's got an 11 year old car and looking to think about a new one, um, I have to admit, I'm looking at electric vehicles and seeing if I can make that work for, for my family as well. One thing you can do that I want to bring forward for this conversation is to do a home energy audit. Like you mentioned earlier, and also like a lot of people are experiencing, a lot of folks are spending more time at home now. Sometimes people are working from home, their kids might be going to school at home. And that's changing energy consumption across Minnesota and across the globe. Um, and here in Minnesota, we have a state law that's really strong that requires utilities to actually spend money to increase energy efficiency. And they use some of that funding to finance home energy audits at a very low cost for people across um, different utility service areas. So I live in the Twin Cities. And here, both Centerpoint Energy, the gas company, and Excel Energy Minnesota, the electricity company, both offer the Home Energy Squad energy audits. And when I moved to my new home in, in Fridley about three years ago, we brought those folks out. Um, and for 100 bucks, you can have someone come and do a full energy audit of your home. They'll take thermal imagery to see where there are any leaks. They'll do a blower test to see whether there are air leaks that can be fixed in your home. And they'll even replace all the light bulbs in your home with LED bulbs that are much more energy efficient. And the cost is really negligible relative to the benefit that you get. Um, so if you haven't already had a home energy audit or you haven't had one in a few years because uh, it's been a while, um, homeenergysquad.net is where you go to find out more. And like I said, the enhanced service package, which is $600 with a value is only $100 for consumers. And um, folks, there's also a sliding scale and also some, um, you can get it for free if your income eligibility levels are met. So uh, don't run away from that, even if you think $100 sounds like a lot of money. In fact, it probably might even be free for you if you uh, if you ask the question. So that's my one thing you can do for uh, that. So cover your transportation footprint and also think about your home footprint too. And if we all start thinking about that in this way, as Ellen said, a lot of these uh, small actions start to add up and start to really become an unstoppable movement to actually make real change, the kind of change that we need. Well, Ellen, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a great conversation. Anything else you want to leave people with before we let you go? Well, sure. I have one uh, closing thought, and it sort of stems from the one thing you can do, uh, whether it's trying to get more access to bike lanes and more affordable electric vehicles or more access to energy audits that help you make your home more efficient and uh, your electricity costs lower. All of those things are tied closely to public policy. And so I want to encourage everyone who wants to do something to help their carbon footprint to also make sure you educate yourselves, get to know your local officials so that you can choose well when it's an election time because elected officials at the state level, at the city level, and at the national level all make a difference in enabling what Aaron was talking about to do those and you know those home energy audits and they can also block those things that we were talking about like doing clean cars so that everybody has access to more different kinds of affordable electric vehicles so public policy is tied so closely into all of these things and so we need our leaders to lead on climate that's a great way to end it. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us today, Ellen, and congratulations on your new role at MCEA. We're looking forward to seeing what you do with it. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Voices Driving Change podcast by the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy. 
As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, this podcast is just one of 10 online events that MCEA is doing between September 15th and 24th to celebrate the voices driving change for climate justice and clean water in Minnesota. This is one of three episodes that we're releasing during this 10-day period, so be sure to subscribe to Voices Driving Change in your podcast player like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or SoundCloud for all the additional episodes. Also, go to VoicesDrivingChange.org. That's VoicesDrivingChange.org to learn more about all the podcasts, to register for live events and webinars. That's at VoicesDrivingChange.org. You can stay up to date with our work on climate solutions on our main website, mncenter.org, and by following MCEA on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Go to MCEA1974 on any of those platforms. Lastly, you can fuel our work by making a donation. You can go to mncenter.org donate, or be sure to join us at 7 p.m. on September 24th for our capstone event for this Voices Driving Change campaign. That is Legally Green in your living room, and it's at 7 p.m. on Thursday, September 24th. This has been Voices Driving Change, a project of the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy. Special thanks to Ian Levin and Mike Compton of Studio Americana for editing and producing the podcast, and also thanks to Adam Reinert of MCEA for production and editing assistance. Have a great day.